Hey guys, Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action has acquired the secret to building a thicker, greener lawn. In return, they have taken all the hard work out of the picture to give you more time to do nothing extra. People don't realize that it's easy to get the lawn of their dreams by simply feeding their lawn a few times throughout the year. Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action kills weeds, prevents crabgrass, and feeds to build thick green lawns. With Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action, you can finally get the lawn you've always dreamt of. Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action will give your yard the nourishment it needs to help your weak, thin lawn recover. When you feed with Scott's Turf Builder Triple Action multiple times throughout the year, your grass will be greener, stronger, and more resilient. Pick up a bag today. This is a Scott's yard. Also, Scott's no quibble money back guarantee states if you're not satisfied, you get your money back. This is a Scott's yard. Hey, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with Jeff Passan, ESPN's senior MLB insider. Jeff, how are you on this Sunday? I am fantastic, Woj. How are you? Good, good. You know, we got together a couple weeks ago, you and Adam Silver. <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> actually, it wasn't you and Adam Silver. <laughs> But it was you and Adam Schefter and me. <laughs> Adam S., you know, close enough. Yeah, yeah that would have been uh, probably no, more newsworthy. Um, but, no, you you and Adam Schefter and, and, and me and talked about kind of where the three sports were and in this process of, of, of them trying to come back this season. But baseball, Jeff, and I, and I think you and I have been talking about this, and the contrasts is baseball and the NBA both start to get closer to coming back? And, and baseball has, I think, unveiled more formal um, frameworks of what it would look like. Uh, you reported a great deal about it this past weekend. But but I want to start here, Jeff. How different the two unions are and the impact that has on how these leagues will come back the Major League Baseball Players Association and the National Basketball Players Association. I don't know if the relationships between a union and its players and the commissioner slash owners, I'm not sure there could be as different really as, as baseball and, and basketballs is for, for, for NBA fans who may not pay as close attention to sort of that dynamic in baseball, explain the relationship, a little bit of the history, and, and kind of and where that gets us right now with Major League Baseball's Players Association and 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 the league. So I'm going to start in the present first because I think it's important to to really lay the groundwork for this. The NBA and the NBPA is a partnership. Major League Baseball and the MLBPA is an adversarial relationship. They almost have to work together just to get games on the field. Whereas with the NBA, it seems like they want to work together to maximize their product and their profits. And a a lot of this goes back, Woj, 50 years at this point to when the MLBPA was formed. Uh, The MLBPA came about because 
players, honestly, were treated terribly by owners. I mean, they they were not getting paid nearly what they deserve to. And a man named Marvin Miller came in. He was a, an economist and uh, a brilliant person. And he organized uh, the baseball players and, and for 40 plus years uh, went from this nascent group of players to the most powerful union in the United States and, and arguably the most powerful union in the world. And, and it's difficult to understate how much power the MLBPA wielded for those four decades. They won practically every labor battle there was. Uh, and, and you can look back at the strike in 1994 and say nobody won that. But, uh, again and again and again, when labor deals were done, the players were the ones who who reaped the benefits more than the owners. Uh, that has changed over the last decade. And as Rob Manfred, the commissioner in baseball, has consolidated power, uh, he has has done so and done so with a, a bit of an adversarial bent toward the union. There is not a lot of respect between him and Tony Clark, the MLBPA executive director. Uh, there is no love lost at, at lower levels of both the commissioner's office and the MLBPA leadership. And because of that, uh, we're at this impasse right now where all parties should, in an ideal world, and are in the NBA's world, working together to come back without any issues. Uh, issues right now are abounding in baseball, though. You know, what's what's remarkable is Adam Silver had a conference call with the Players Association <laughs> um, two Fridays ago. And now not all the players were on the call. Uh, most of the leagues, the Players Association's executive committee, so Chris Paul, Andre Iguodala, Kyrie Irving, players who are voted in, they have elevated union positions. And I, I listened to the audio of the call, and it could not have been, given what they were talking about, it couldn't have been more like collegial, I guess that's that's the word. And Adam Silver's on there telling them, hey, guys, like we're, we're going to come back for, to you and you're going to make less money next year. Listen, remember, we're a 50-50 revenue split uh, mm-hmm. on, you know, it's essentially 51-49. And, um, but essentially, um, we've got it, we're going to have to negotiate some, some difficult things and that's not going to be great. It, it, we've got some hard times ahead of us. And you hear players say, "Hey, Adam, thanks for coming on. <laughs> Appreciate you. We never really had this before." It's and, and it was. Uh, I, I was trying to imagine what would happen if Rob Manfred got on with with some of the higher profile uh, players in Major League Baseball. Could could they have that kind of a conversation? Never. <laughs> <laughs> like I wish, you know, I, I wish in, in the thousand simulations of, of life that are going through my head right now, I can imagine even one of them in which that happens. No, because there is a very deep seated mistrust between the players and owners. And, and that in a lot of ways, Woj goes back to, uh, the, the start of the union and, and really this whole relationship between the players and owners. It has been, you know, it's been contentious. And even though MLB actually has the longest streak of labor peace in American team professional sports right now, uh, there, there still always has been that element of on the player side, 
uh, the owners are trying to screw us again. And on the owner side, the players don't know what's best for them or for the game. And you see that with baseball being the only uncapped team professional sport in America left. And that's where a lot of the animus, I think, over the last 10 days or so has started because MLB was prepared to offer a 50-50 revenue split this year to the players. And immediately, Tony Clark, the MLBPA executive director, came out and said, uh, that's a salary cap. No. And and look, it wasn't a salary cap, but it's an element of a salary cap. And we have to look back again, Woj, 1994, that season was lost in large part because uh, because MLB tried to institute a salary cap and the players said, absolutely no way. This is not happening. Yeah. And it's, you know, I saw that, the, what it seems like the leagues in, in baseball, the league is, is saying is that, that our numbers say if we did the prorated salaries mm-hmm. that they had agreed to a few months ago, a couple months ago, that they would prorate the player salaries based on games, on the games played, that the players then would, that would give the player's side 89% of the revenue. Now, is that a universally accepted <laughs> number or is that, that's just the number, the owners that, that, that's their number, right? Uh, that is MLB's figures. And, yeah. uh, I, I like to go back to what Paul Beeston, who at one point was president of the Toronto Blue Jays and, uh, who worked for MLB. It famously said, and I'm I'm just paraphrasing here, but it's something like this. Under generally accepted accounting principles, I can make a $4 million profit look like a $2 million loss. So the, the math that's taking place here is, uh, is without context. You know, you can throw numbers up against the wall and say, this is what reality is. Uh, but the MLBPA said, okay, open your books then. Let's actually see this. And there's no chance MLB is going to be opening its books, particularly with the current collective bargaining agreement running out uh, after the 2021 season. So all of all of this is is par for the course. And it's just really interesting to be on the baseball side of the fence and and see uh, just this relationship that's toxic, for lack of a better word. And then to go read your column where the commissioner got on the phone with superstars in his game and they respected him and they listened to him and and he felt comfortable enough to tell them things might not be good like that is that's a, that's an unbelievable thing to me that the relationship there exists between the two parties that they can have that honest of a discussion with one another and they don't feel like either side is going to weaponize one another's words. Yeah, and you know what's interesting, Jeff, too, and I'm not saying there's not significant or some that there's a lack of trust or there's certainly skepticism mm-hmm. among players with owners in the NBA. They don't love all the owners. A lot of them don't love their own owner and yep. their particular team. But what's remarkable, and, and I guess it's a credit to how Adam Silver has led, is even though he works for the owners, and at the end of the day, he's like, it, it, when the CBA talks come, listen, he's working for the owners. He's negotiating on their behalf. The players don't see him as a, a nemesis. Now, they did at the end with David Stern, and mm-hmm. part of that was – Stern Stern had listen. There was a time where David Stern did have relationships with the star players, 
Magic Johnson, uh, Michael Jordan. He could go to the key guys. As he got older and stayed, the, the, uh, an, another generation of players, maybe a combination of the disconnect, a combination of his inability to maybe have the patience he once had. And and the one thing Adam Silver, it's funny, when he took over as commissioner, a lot of the whispers around the league was, well, he's going to have to, he won't be able to be the relationship guy anymore because he had relationships with not just the players, but the agents. And I remember right. team executives or some owners going, he's not going to be able to have those agent relationships anymore. That stuff's going to, that's going to have to go. He's going to have to be the bad guy. He better get used to that. And Adam Silver just went into the job and he kept doing it in a lot of ways the same way with the same thought. I'm going to build relationships with the players. And I'm going to keep, especially the, you know, the star players. Uh-huh. And when I need something, when I need to call on them, I'm going to be able to do it and be able to talk to them. And then the Players Association, Billy Hunter and David Stern had just this awful, just this disdain for each other, horrible. Uh-huh. Uh, working relationship, personal relationship. And then Michelle Roberts comes in and there's a more professional relationship with Adam Silver and and then Chris Paul's role. And I think what's interesting too, Jeff, Chris Paul takes over for Derek Fisher. And Derek Fisher was a role player in the NBA. And Fisher was really interesting in that role as the executive as the president of the players association, he knew that collective bargaining agreement inside and out. I would see him with the document and it would be, the pages would be all worn. He's highlighted all over and you could really talk to him about the substance of it. And I'm not saying Chris Paul can't, but, but that didn't serve Derek as well because Derek wasn't a star. It Uh was a, it was harder for him to go rally uh, people where Chris Paul when he needs – now, Chris Paul's a star in his own right. He's a future Hall of Fame player. Now, he's not the biggest star in the league. He's probably not one of the – not sure he's one of the ten biggest stars anymore, maybe right on that borderline. But he's very close with LeBron James, and they have a great relationship and trust and respect. And when he needs to sell something, he can go to LeBron. They can go to uh, – I mean, go down the list of, of league stars and more – I think more so in the NBA, even though what, what's interesting, even though in the NBA that economically the players down below do not have much of anything in common with the one or two percent at the top, they very, they very often will follow their lead because it is a star driven league. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Adam Silver knows the importance of it. And, and obviously the rank and file do. And it's just interesting in contrast to. The, the baseball and, and the pathway back, Jeff, for the NBA, once Adam Silver says, I think we can do this in a when, – when he brings out his plan of how they're going to play, it's, you know, if, it's, if it's one site, if it's all the teams, if it's just the playoff teams, if it's some combination of that, you know, I think they're all going to look at it. And, and I, the sense I get is the players believe that Adam Silver wouldn't put them in harm's way. Uh-huh. That, that they trust that he would not put them in harm's way. And that doesn't mean they're not going to have questions. That doesn't mean there's not going to be guys who don't really want to do this because there will be and there are. But, boy, it's different than baseball. There's What there is, I think, with Adam Silver is I, – I know I keep bringing up trust. But Adam Silver in 
situations of great gravity in the past has made the right decisions. Let's go back and look at what he did with Donald Sterling. I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's always felt like like a very important moment in his time as commissioner because uh, what he did was morally correct, but what he also did was go against one of his 30 bosses because let's remember. M- more than one of them, Jeff. Only yeah, one, I, one publicly and vocally because, listen, every one of these guys – well, no, I take that back. Any number of these guys might have something in their personal life or – it yep. may not be as, as egregious as Sterling. Now, listen, well, I, I, I hope Donald, Donald Sterling, <laughs> Donald Sterling, he was not run out for that one incident. It was a lifetime achievement award <laughs> for Donald Sterling. It was not that one moment. He They got him on tape, but that was a lifetime achievement award of his behavior. Uh, it, it was all like the, the league just didn't have the courage to do it. David Stern never – uh, they they weren't able. This gave them the ability to do it, and you're right. It did win a lot of respect among the players, and in some ways it was easy. In some ways, I don't know how hard of a decision. It, like it was popular with everybody. The owners knew, and and there weren't going to be many of them. I, I think Mark Cuban came out and essentially said, "Hey, I, like I agree how egregious this is, but are we going to? What then does that mean?" What act or what's the next event that could cause me to lose my team? Sure. Um, and, and I get that. Like, it's, it, how, what kind of an arbitrary decision does it become? But you're right, Jeff. That's in a lot of ways, that was how players framed him early. And then they went through a labor negotiation, mm-hmm. which like the deal just got done without it. It was kind of a status quo agreement. They didn't change much. Things were going great for the league. They just sort of went forward with it. So they didn't have the ugliness of a labor battle. They didn't sit in a room screaming and yelling at each other like David Stern had had with players. Uh-huh. And uh, those are all things that are, I, I think, benefit Silver in the league right now. And, and and it's amazing to me the way that Adam Silver has been able to maintain his respect among ownership and the players. That is an extraordinarily difficult balance to strike for any leader because in, in reality, he is beholden to one party and and has to uh, – I'm not going to say take advantage of the other, but the other is is not aligned completely with him on what his endgame goals are. So, so the ability to convince players that I am here for you while working for the people who employ you is magical. It's a gift. It's something that Roger Goodell hasn't done. It's something that Gary Bettman hasn't done. It's something that Rob Manfred hasn't done. And it's what makes Adam Silver so unique in this landscape right now that that he has done the ideal for a commissioner. He has run a a league that, to me, is is the model professional sports league uh, in America right now, has done so seemingly with integrity. And, and has been able to maintain his relationships despite having to make difficult decisions. And I think, you know, I think the Rudy Gobert incident really was illustrative of that. It's hard to be a leader. And, and it's even harder to be a leader who has to make in the moment decisions. And, and I understand that Adam Silver is smart enough to have 
at least considered this as a possibility and spoken with with his consigliaries about, okay, what do we do in the event of? But actually pulling the trigger on something like that in the moment as quickly as he did was a lesson in decisiveness that I think a lot of leaders can learn from. And granted, because he he turned out to be really the first of of everyone, not just in sports, Woj, but like in America to really grasp what was going on then, I think it makes him look even better in hindsight that uh, he had the foresight to do this. And, and I don't think, I don't think that the NCAA tournament and the uh-huh. and the conference tournaments get canceled. No chance. In those no. next few days, if that didn't happen, maybe they would have played some without crowds. Maybe, uh, but I think they would have. I think that forced the NCA, which which isn't a especially when you're going conference by conference. It isn't. There's not one individual who has oversight of all of it. Everybody was deciding. Uh, among them, I, I'll always remember. I remember. I remember being back up in Bristol, uh, sitting on the set on Sports Center the night after Rudy Gobert, and mm-hmm. I drove up either late that night or early the next morning. And I remember sitting on the set on Sports Center, and I was going on to talk about uh, report on whatever the, the latest was with the league. And I went out and sat on the set, and they were going to do a, a, a Reese Davis. I'm trying to remember who was. A uh, Reese was in studio, and he had like Jay Billis and one of our other big college guys uh, from one of the sites. And all of a sudden, I, I, I think it was that day that just as we're sitting there, the NCAA comes out and says the tournament is canceled. Uh-huh. Uh, before I even got it, it was in the minute, two minutes before I sat down and was ready to, they were going to swing it over to me. And then obviously they stayed with Reese and Jay. And I just remember sitting there going, this is a moment in time that we're all going to remember it was in that 24 hour window where everything was getting canceled. And even when the league, even when the NBA got shut down, even initially, Jeff, you didn't, I think for the first 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours, I don't know how long it was. You thought, okay, is this a, is this a week thing? Is this 10 days? (laughs) Is this maybe two weeks? Right. And then once the tournament got shut down, you're going, no, no. Like you realize, no, they're not, they're not coming back. Like we're not like there's like, this is we're in this for the long run that they're not going to be able to just uh, go against uh, conventional uh, the, the, the medical wisdom. And I think the other thing too, Jeff silver had credibility on this issue with uh, the owners, with the players, because he was, I mean, I was hearing for when this was in Europe and this was in China and Mm -hmm. they were feeling the, vi- the virus had made its way through, uh, obviously, more aggressively there before it got to the states. He was preparing teams every single day. I mean, long before the federal government sounded as though they were taking it seriously or were really warning people or saying this was anything more than the flu, the teams were being told every single day with more and more information uh, and data, we have to get ready for this. And And I'll never forget, like a week prior I would say like a week prior to Rudy Gobert, I remember one general man, president slash general manager said to me, we're going to lose games. Like, we're, like we're, they're going to stop playing here at some point. Uh-huh. And I said, we haven't even had a positive case yet. You think so? He said, no, no, we're going to stop playing. And I said, oh, and, and then, it, but, but a lot of that was 
silver. And I, so I do think that earned silver credibility that he was out ahead, you know, that they were, you know, that they were preparing everybody for what was coming. He, he was the leader that that's what he was. All of, all of sports <clears throat> followed in his path. And I, you know, maybe part of that is because the NBA was the first league to have a known positive. And, uh, you know, maybe if it were the, the 12th man off the, you know, on a, on a roster, it would have been a little different, but this was Rudy Gobert, an all-star, one of the best centers in the league. Uh, so, so that really, I think exaggerated the, the gravity of it, but it, I, I just, I can't get over the fact that even days after the NBA canceled, Baseball was still out there playing exhibition games like that. I, I, I will, I will never forget that morning. Um, I was at Dodgers camp and Wright Thompson, a uh, good friend was there and he was supposed to hang out with Clayton Kershaw because he was writing a big Clayton Kershaw feature. And uh, I had, I had woken up that morning, not knowing where I was going to be going, but uh, I talked with Charlie Moynihan, uh, the, the great producer at ESPN and, we decided to go to Dodgers camp because there were some questions. I think the night before California had started shutting down a little bit. And so there were going to be quite, are there actually going to be baseball games in California over the next few months? And I get to Dodgers camp that morning and I just remember racing inside and outside, inside and outside, inside and outside. Uh, every time I would get a phone call, I would go outside and it would be like, eh, things aren't looking great. Okay. The owners are talking. Okay. What happened on the owner's call? Ooh, this doesn't sound good. Are they actually going to shut things down? But there were still games going on in Florida right. at that very moment. And, and seeing this whole thing unfold in real time, it's, it's, it's really interesting to look back. A couple of months later now and and the way you put it like the, that you were sort of surprised when you heard they were gonna lose games uh when baseball shut down then and it said we're gonna reevaluate in two weeks i uh, i remember thinking uh boy i really hope it's gonna be two weeks but i'm not buying that for one second at this point i i i wasn't sure it was gonna turn into this but i do remember having a conversation that night saying that I think the over-under for baseball starting is going to be the all-star break. And mm -hmm. the person I was talking with said, all-star break? That's like three or four months away. I was like, yes, it is. And and now baseball's hopeful to get back right around then. But, man, after you know, after the release of the health and safety plan, this, this massive 67-page document that includes so many, like, to me – Somebody whose job it is to understand the landscape here, mind blowing details. Uh, you know, early July seems really optimistic right now. And it, it made me, you know, beyond the implications, Woj, for baseball, it made me think if baseball is naturally a socially distanced sport right. and it is probably best of all sports to come back just in terms of purely in terms of safety, mm -hmm. what is going to happen with the NFL and the NBA and the NHL going, going forward? If baseball can't get off the ground, how can any of these other sports? Michael and Scotty, Shaq and Kobe, LeBron and D Wade, just a few NBA duos that are undeniably the real deal. Now those duos won multiple NBA championships. If you want to be remembered in history as one of the great duos, 
you'd better win a title. Carl Malone and John Stockton, notwithstanding, they, they have their place in history. But what's the place in history going to be for Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid? Will they stay together in Philly? Do they have to win to stay together long-term in Philly? And, of course, the two Los Angeles teams right now, LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and then across the hall in Staples Center with the Clippers, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Some tremendous duos in this league right now who have a chance to go down with some of the great ones in history, but they've got to win titles first. Draft a State Farm agent to your team and get help combining the ultimate duo, home and auto insurance. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The plan that you outla- that you reported on over the weekend, Jeff, the level of of effort and work, I, I guess, at yeah. the very least, that goes into uh, players. And, and again, remember, players who are – we're not talking about an isolated environment like the NBA is going to have, all in one location. Right. We're talking about home and away and travel and being in uh, a foreign city – not a foreign city. You're in a way, in a way city, I should say. And players would be living at home and coming in and out of the ballpark the way they normally would. Uh, based on the economic issues that mm-hmm. were already there, now that players have had a chance to digest and their agents have had a chance to digest, uh, the lengths it's going to go to the, the players and, and everyone's going to have to go to put the product on the field. Does that make it? More or less difficult, do you think, for them to come to agreement on returning to play? Because the economic issues are one thing. This yep. is something else now. I think everybody, from players to clubs to owners, have to ask themselves the question right now. Is it worth it? And I don't know what the answer is. I think the answer is yes. I think the answer they're going to say is yes, because I think they feel like the long-term implications of not having a season in 2020 are so devastating, financially in particular, that they they just have to give the old college try and see if they can pull it off. But it's a, it's a lot of logistics to do. It's a lot of change. And, and I think what they have to do is – you know, so so often people say you're just playing a game. You know, don't get greedy, don't do this and that. And I I kind of I kind of shrug that off. Typically, that sort of rhetoric because yeah, they are just playing a game. They also have a a unique talent that puts them in the ninety nine point nine 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 percent of of humanity at what they do. And people to me who are gifted deserve to be compensated for that gift that they have right now, though, you can't, if you are a player turn around and say, I I just can't do this. I can't go to these lengths when there are frontline healthcare workers and nursing home workers and grocery store workers and people who are out there in not nearly as coddled environments going and doing what they do on an everyday basis. At the same time, Woj, you have to look at what players are going to have to do and understand that it is an inconvenience and there is going to be some reticence to it. It's the same reticence that you and I and everyone else have adjusting to this new normal. And and I hope that there's some empathy on all sides here to understand that uh, having to deal with this reality 
That is not coddled. That is not normal for them. That's outside of what they have grown used to for the entirety of their lives because they are professional athletes and because they have been put up on pedestals since a young age in most cases is, is going to be important. And that I, I hope in the end people respect the decisions that are made so long as those decisions are made for the right reason. If the reason is we don't understand how to split up billions of dollars and can't come to terms on that. I don't know if that's for the right reason, but if the reason is this is just too daunting a thing to get off the ground and we're worried for the health and safety of the people involved and, and concern that trying to do this is going to cause more harm than it does good. I, I don't think anybody can look at that as anything but a responsible decision that are made by adults who, who in times like these, had better be responsible. Jeff, why did it go? Why did baseball go from the idea that the NBA was on, which was essentially one site that was originally a plan in Arizona, and then they moved off of that and went toward, well, we'll just let te- we'll let teams play in their stadiums. We'll move around, and that's when the the idea went from a prorated, and also the idea went from prorated salary mm-hmm. uh, to fifty fifty split. What, what changed? There were a couple things there. One, I think that baseball saw just how difficult logistically it was going to be to uh, isolate as many people as they were. We're talking thousands of people. We're talking, honestly, what they're doing, Woj, is building a city. Building a city is a really difficult thing to do from scratch in a matter of weeks or months. And, and I think that was daunting to everybody involved. But more than that, I think it came down to a financial issue. I think that uh, the the local regional sports networks that account for so much of baseball's revenue because the national television contracts aren't quite as robust as they are, say, with the NBA or particularly with the NFL, the regional sports networks said, we want you to play games at home. And that desire of the RSNs and the billion plus dollars that they're going to give to broadcast games this season was a hugely motivating factor in baseball trying to go to this city by city plan, despite the fact that a number of the cities may not be willing to host the games when they're ready to be played. Like that's the, you know, once we get past all the, the labor stuff between the, the players and the owners. And, and you think they will, you think, you think they will, you think they will get past it. I'm not as optimistic as I was just a, you know, uh, part of it is is just reading through that document. Like I always understood that it was going to be hard to come back, and and that it was going to take some some serious efforting and people going outside their comfort zones in, in terms of negotiating and and maybe giving a little more than they would like. But after seeing sixty seven pages of rules, it's like wow, Get, getting the players on board with this and figuring the money out and doing that over the course of the next two weeks is going to be really, really difficult to pull off. And so I'm not saying there's not going to be a baseball season. I'm not saying there is going to be a baseball season either. You know, I think there's a greater burden on baseball to play because they haven't started a season. The NBA played 75% of the season. Yes. Now they won't have crowned a champion and that's a big deal, but the game won't have disappeared for a significant of a stretch of time is baseball would have to disappear. 
if they don't play. And I do think – I don't think the NBA has to play. I understand why they want to play, and uh-huh. they prefer to uh, crown a champion and finish this off. But I think also I sent your story today on – well, was it – when did it come out? I lose track of time. Saturday, you're, you're – I came out, came out on Sunday where you got yeah. into greater depth on all the precautions and all how different – it's just going to look how everything that would have to go into the baseball uh, MLB playing. And I said it to a bunch of GMs and I said, how in the NBA, what, what do you think? How do you think this would play? Cause you're going to get some similar, similar document. And, oh, yeah. and there's no question like that, like they, they, they devoured the story. They were fascinated by it, but I do think it's going to be easier in basketball for a few reasons, uh, fewer games. Mm-hmm. And those who are playing are going to be, we don't even know if they're bringing back all 30 teams. They might right. just bring the playoff teams back, or they might bring, let's do a play-in, and so maybe we'll take as far as the 10th seeds. We have eight, you know, the top eight seeds in each conference go to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. What if they only bring back, maybe they bring back the top 10 or the top 12 and they do a play-in, or maybe yeah. they bring back all 30. The, the teams themselves don't know yet what direction the NBA is going to go with that. The union doesn't know yet. I'm not sure if Adam Silver knows yeah, but they're going to have to start drilling down into that. But it's a lot different to just okay if I'm if I'm just going to do a training camp and come back and play a few games and be finished. That's not so hard to stay in a bubble environment. If I have to, it's you know what though I I think it is I think it's still I, extremely difficult and and they, I they won't that, be motivated to do it right right that's, yes yeah. yes and that's, that's what they're the, worried about that's what they're worried about they're worried I, about. That, that what is the incentive to have these teams go through a second training camp, come back and play a few games. They can't win. They're not going to be able to reach the eighth seed. So you're going to, if you're going to bring everybody back, you almost certainly have to have some kind of a play in tournament or why does Washington or Portland or Charlotte, let's say teams who are within the 10 seed and in who have some star players who could be healthy and get in and, and, and beat somebody and get in the playoffs. And even then though, what is, what is it worth? So that's part of it. But once you get into the playoffs, you just have a more motivated group of people because your teams are advancing. So half the league goes home in 10 days because you lose your first round series or however long it takes to get through um, a best of seven and you go home. Uh, th- that's going to be the question for the NBA. Uh, I-, I think they're they're looking more and more toward whether they come back to play or not starting next season in late December or mid to late December. And, and changing the calendar. So in fact, that the NBA, and this is what some have been talking about, and now they may have to do this by design. What the NBA is essentially saying, or what the thought was, let's go against Major League Baseball in the yeah. summer instead of having to go against the NFL through the Super Bowl, through the end of January. And that's part of this discussion too now. And it's not an unreasonable thing to do. And I think the motivations, Woj, for MLB and the NBA are a little different. I think the NBA recognizes its place in the landscape. It is the clear number two sport in America right now. And it's also the sport that has probably the most enviable demographics in terms of its fan base and the percentage of young fans that it has. The NBA is in a really good position. It has stars in a star-driven society. It has marketing that's better than everyone else. It has what everyone else wants. Major League Baseball sees this almost as an opportunity 
to get back some fans that it's lost in recent years because it's seen as a slow game because it's seen as a game that doesn't have any big personalities or great stars. And so I think the motivating factors there uh, for, for the two sides are, are very different. And beyond that, like you said, the NBA, 75% of its, its gate this year, uh, a bunch of television contract money, like it got enough to tide itself over for a while. Baseball doesn't have any revenue coming in at this point. And, uh, you know, Rob Manfred a couple of days ago on CNN talked about how the league would lose $4 billion this season. I mean, that's, that's not a drop in the bucket there. And again, we don't know what the math is on that, but I think what we do know is if there are no games this year, the math is exponentially uglier. And, and it's just, you know, for everybody involved, I understand that teams, could theoretically maybe possibly lose money. Certainly some teams would because they have higher payrolls than others if there are games that are played. But to, to me, the long-term, um, the long-term benefit that, that baseball gets from playing this year, from giving people something to look at every single day, from bringing sports back is, is a big time motivating factor in what it does. And it's why I don't think that uh, either the league or the players are going to lay down and not try to get this thing at least across the line to spring training. I Look, where it goes from there, whether they have the ability to pull off a season, uh, what happens when somebody inevitably tests positive and, and how right. that's handled optically uh, as well as inside the clubhouse – the number of guys who may just say, not worth it, peace out, see you in 2021, and skip the season. All of those things are real, and all of those things are realistic right now. And and knowing that, uh, it makes baseball's path back that much harder. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, too, for the NBA, if the NBA was having the public conversations that baseball was having about taking less money, about a 50-50 split. Right. Uh, what Bryce Harper said the other day, uh, who's the highest paid player in baseball at over $300 million, as an over, his contract's over $300 million, right? $30 million a year. Yeah, he's, he's $330 million. It's, right. the biggest free, it's the biggest free agent contract in history. Right. Um, how would it be viewed in the NBA if a comparable player, uh, and now he was backing up, uh, Blake Blake Snell. Blake Snell from Tampa Bay, who yep. essentially was very animated in his, I'm not playing for, however he broke the money down. He he makes, what, $7 million in salary now? Correct. And, and then, so let's split it in half, right, essentially, and then go from there. Like the risk, and it's not what I agreed. He, he went off. Uh, Harper backed him up. I think that in the NBA, they've been through this, and they understand – that in a league that is uh, predominantly African-American, that it is received differently. It just is by many in the general public. And it's always been the fine line that the commissioner, it's funny, when David Stern would have to go to war with the players in the union, he had to be careful to not beat them up too badly and not pile on because he had to sort of fight for the financial system they wanted but also understand that these are your, this is your product. These are your players. And in the end, 
their popularity is paramount for the league. So you always, the league's always had to walk a line because of race that we can't get caught up with the rest of, or I don't want to say the rest of society, but many others in calling these guys greedy and yep. ungrateful and overpaid and under all this, all the buzzwords you want to throw at it. I think baseball can get away with it. The NFL is different. Listen, the star players in the NFL, many are African-American, but a lot in the NFL are the Tom Brady's and the Peyton Manning's and uh, the, the, the Drew Brees, the quarterbacks. Now the, the composition of the NFL has changed. And now, you know, we, we'll see what happens. Like the Dak Prescott thing just – I mean, I know we, we talk about it every day at ESPN because um, <laughs> it's the Cowboys. Uh, but there is a – there's a reality. It's just a reality that those in the NBA know they have to deal with, and it's a line that they have to walk. And I think it's – you know, and but baseball is a sport that's – it's it's populace of players is very diverse, uh, not necessarily yeah. – a great deal of African American players from the United States, although, um, I mean, that's been a big issue about our ability in this country to, to make the sport accessible to young people in, from diverse backgrounds, but the players are coming from all over the world and there's a language barrier and that creates difficulties at times. I, I just think these times where it's about a split of money and you ought to just go back and play. How dare you? Um, it's, it's, uh, baseball and, and the, uh, baseball, and the NBA have, they're going to be treated a little differently in that regard. They are. And, and I think a, a really big part of it too, is that goes beyond the race. And, and that is so true. And this is kind of along the same lines. The public tends to back owners. Always. Now, now this isn't, this isn't. True in every city, you know, are the Mets really backing the Will Ponds? Mets fans really backing the Will Ponds? You know, there are ownership groups that are despised in certain places, but the players are always fighting that fight. And in baseball, I think it's even worse because when you don't woge have the stars that the NBA does, the league almost looks at itself as the laundry is more important than the player. Right. Is that really the case? I think I think if you took the players away and replaced them with replacement players, that would prove that a complete fallacy. Yeah, we saw we saw how that went. Didn't go. Yeah, right. didn't go. Didn't go particularly no, well. No. But but I think the the position of power that players should draw from that just doesn't square with with reality. And I I don't think Major League Baseball is particularly afraid of the players looking bad. Because I, I don't think that the the regard for an individual's ability to uplift the sport is all that high. You just don't – you haven't seen it since Ken Griffey Jr. Like there just hasn't yeah. been a guy. It's, I'm sorry it was not Alex Rodriguez. I'm sorry it was not Derek Jeter. I'm sorry it's not Bryce Harper. It's not Mike Trout. It's none of these guys. There has not been a, a transcendent cross-cultural figure – in baseball since Ken Griffey Jr. And, and that really reached its peak in the mid nineties. We're going on a quarter century now, Woj, without a seminal player who everybody in the public knows and has that Q score. 
So I think the, you know, when, when the union shoots itself in the foot or when Blake Snell goes out and says something like he does, this is a guy who won the Cy Young award in 2018. This is not some, you know, backbench guy that this is like, this is a dude. And when he goes out and does that, I don't think baseball's sitting there like smiling or cheering. I think they're, they're like, Oh God, why are, you know, why is this being brought upon our right. sport? But I don't think that if they were to go out of their way and go after players, that it would have nearly the same impact that it would in the NBA. Hey guys, now more than ever, we have to look out for each other and count on each other. Marathon wants you to know that you can count on them for the high-quality, top-tier gas. Marathon gasolines are formulated with STP additives. They keep your vehicle running at peak performance by optimizing fuel economy, removing those ugly deposit buildups, and by reducing emissions. And right now, you can get $0.05 off every gallon every day with Make It Count rewards from Marathon. Plus, you can earn points for additional savings on fuel, airfare, hotels, and more. This is definitely a deal you can count on. It's quick and easy to join. Just download the free Make It Count app or go to makeitcount.com slash radio and start saving today. This offer is valid only at participating Marathon stations. Remember, wherever you need to go, be safe. The people at Marathon are behind you all the way. Jeff, what do you think has to happen for whether it's baseball and the NBA and maybe football in the fall, maybe it's college football, NFL. What's going to have to happen for it to get shut down again after it starts up? Will it take somebody dying? No, I think it takes an outbreak on a team. Mm-hmm. That's that's just and, – and it's interesting because for the thoroughness of those 67 pages in MLB's health and safety document, there was not a single mention of what happens if there's an outbreak. Because I, I don't think they want to – peg themselves they don't want to have to that's right they don't want to back themselves into a corner to have to do something because we we don't know what the country is going to look like we don't know what the country is going to look like next week we don't hell i don't know what the country looks like today it's really difficult to cut through all of the information all of the data all of the experts to try and understand who's a reliable source who's been correct in the past who prognosticates well into the future all of these different things that i as as a consumer not just of media but as a seeker of truth and understanding for my own sake for my family's sake for my kids future all of these things i try you know i consider myself a, an educated uh and and thorough person i have no idea what's going on right now and that is a terrible feeling to have, right? And and it, it takes us back to the beginning. You talked about the trust for, for in Adam Silver's case, anyway, is because I think that's the feeling. It's not just in the NBA or baseball. It's the feeling, and it's the feeling working at ESPN. It's the feeling working at the, the grocery store down the street, or the car dealership, or the insurance company, whatever wherever you are. Nobody feels like they know. And it's one of those cases where it's not that somebody's not telling us. It's not that somebody's holding out the answer. Uh-huh. Nobody really knows. Again, it's it's studying the data and trying to go by more than what somebody's hunch is. Somebody has a hunch right. of what it's going to be. No, no, like we, we, we need uh, – we, we can't make decisions here based on somebody's empowers hunch. But 
And that's I, why that's yeah. why that's why Woj I, I found the reaction to the health and safety protocol from MLB so interesting. The the divisiveness that it causes and the absolute intransigence of people to to look at something regardless of your perspective and change it at all and and accept that the purpose of what MLB is doing here it, it's rooted in logic and pragmatism it's not rooted in some dogmatism that people at MLB feel a particular way so they're no the, the people at MLB believe that in order to get back on the field you don't just have to come to a deal with the players you have to have a deal with the players then you have to have the support of the federal government the state government and local governments then you have to get health officials on board and those are the people who are going to be the most difficult because their only job is to ensure the safety of people in public and it is so much easier to say no to an idea that might have risk than to say yes and regret that you did it. And and that's, you know, that is that's that's why going back to Adam Silver, that's why I have so much respect for him as a commissioner. Because he very easily could have been doing the wrong thing and overreacting uh and and I you know, he could have at the time played it safe and kept going out there because I don't think at the time people thought you know, you look at the number of cases, you look at the number of hospital uh, hospitalizations, you look at the number of deaths. At the time, the safe thing to do was still to go out there because I don't think we recognized just how big of a deal this was. He made the bold decision, and I will forever applaud him for that and for having the foresight that so many others in sports simply didn't. You know, basketball, the NBA is going to have the benefit. Very like, It's very likely they will have the benefit of watching how – Major League Baseball, potentially, yeah. and the NFL, yep. and or college football, try to integrate fans back into uh, arenas or stadiums before the because the NBA is not going to have fans if they start up again, and if their season doesn't start until late December, they will have seen and they're spending that's financially we could put these games on television and people can get their TV money, but the gate receipts are massive. Uh, mm-hmm. for organizations and, and all kinds of markets, especially small markets. You don't have as big a TV deals for them to stay competitive. And the NBA, you know, they've got a, a collective bargaining agreement and a revenue, essentially a 50-50 revenue split that doesn't work if 40% of the owner's revenue is gone from or, or arenas, from fans. And so already, and, and I reported about this a little bit the other day, you know, they're already talking about, what empty arenas might look like and silver started to prepare the players for that. And that's a little bit of uh negotiating tactic. He's got to convince them sure. that there's dire, that it's going to be dire and you have to accept some of these difficult financial uh adjustments to the salary cap and, 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 and those kinds of items. But the NBA is already looking at, all right, in a 20,000-seat arena or a 17,500-seat arena having 15% or 20% capacity, what does that look like? How does that work? Are you going to let, – let's say it's L.A. and you can't bring – I don't know what Staples Center holds, 20,000, 19, whatever it is. You can't fill up the Staples Center for the Lakers. But let's say you could put 4,500 people in Staples Center. We know there are 4,500 very wealthy, motivated customers out there who would probably pay 
an, an extraordinary amount of money in context to sit, whether it's in part in partly in suites or partly in the bowl of the arena to watch them. And, and what that means is, well, you know, the family of four who's walking up at, you know, yep. seven o'clock to buy tickets yep. to a game, it's not going to be for them. And so I think there will be a level of desperation on the part of the leagues. Then they, they're not going to be, they're going to be concerned about getting the richest possible people who can spend the most possible money to get them in those buildings. And that's what next season could look like. What if, you know, the CDC projects this second wave that might coincide a second wave of the virus that might co- coincide with flu season. Does that shut the leagues down? Does that make mm-hmm. the NBA start up and stop? Or does it say it just means we can't have fans, whatever it's going to look like, you know, Adam Silver can be very popular and be considered, Hey, we're following you, Adam owners, players. Well, when tough economic decisions start to be made, you're going to, there are going to be people angry with you. There's going to be people who think, that side got more than we did, or the big market teams are going to, the small market teams are going to say, there's too much, there's even a bigger advantage for the bigger market teams. We can't even compete at all anymore. We don't have our revenue sharing from the league. What, what are you doing about this, Adam? We can't 20%, you know, 20 of the 30 franchises, we can't, we can't field the team anymore that can even be competitive. We've got to trade off starting players and we're going to just be dumping salt, whatever it is. Hey, that's all going to change. When we get into next year, Jeff, and we and and even if they can play, that there's no fans in arenas, and it'll change. It'll it will hit the sport really hard, really fast mm-hmm. economically. The luxury that Adam Silver has, though, is that he gets to be judicious. If there's no rush for the NBA to come back right now, he can lean back in his chair, see where other leagues succeed, see where other leagues fail, and iterate his plan accordingly. And I think that's one thing that uh, he has done so well. He has made deposits in the bank of goodwill again and again and again over his time that he's been in charge to the point now where he's going to go cash some of those out. LeBron James is the biggest star in the world right now. LeBron James said, I don't want to play in empty arenas in front of no fans. LeBron, you're going to be playing in front of empty arenas with no fans. And that's just a reality that you, Adam Silver might say, have to come to terms with because you are an important part of this league and of this game. And if we want this league and we want this game to be as prosperous as it's been in the past, then we have to have an eye toward the future and do the right thing now. When you make great decisions like Adam Silver's made with Donald Sterling and with Rudy Gobert, you don't want to make a bad decision. You know, he's two for two on the big ones at this point. He doesn't want to go two for three. And and I'm sure I, I don't know Adam Silver. I don't know what motivates him. Uh I, I don't, you know, understand his psyche. But I think any human being who has been right doesn't want to be wrong, especially with something of this sort of consequence. And and the fact that the that the NBA got as much money as it did beforehand allows him the benefit of doing that. Rob Manfred does not have that benefit. Rob Manfred is staring at a situation where a sport that made $10.5 billion last year in revenues could be looking at less than a billion dollars this year if there aren't any games that are paid. He's looking at a sport that has teams that are deeply in debt because of uh, paying for stadiums or because of other financial considerations. And I'm not sitting here feeling sorry for billionaires. I'm sorry, I don't. If you have leveraged yourself to the hilt, 
trying to create more wealth and, and betting on that, the, this is the risk that comes with leveraging. But the consequence for MLB is pretty significant. Either the league has to go and bail out those owners or they go into bankruptcy, team gets sold, prices go down, franchise values go down, and nobody's happy. And, and that is, that is the financial landscape right now that Major League Baseball is looking at, which makes, for me at least, coming back this year that much more important and makes it so confusing when you go and look at the lengths to which they're going to have to go to get the rubber stamps from the people necessary to actually play games. Yeah. And Jeff, you look at the NBA and th- there are leveraged, there are leveraged franchises yeah. financially in the NBA and there are, you know, there's lots of concern about especially smaller market teams, how long they, how long they could go, how long they're, they're able to go, uh, without fans, without gate receipts. 40% of the league's revenue is built around game night operations, whether it's tickets, uh, parking, concessions, merchandise, all of those, all of those things. And I think and that's the, that's the interesting part about a salary capped league compared to Major League Baseball. The teams that are suffering the most in MLB are the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cubs, these teams that draw huge crowds to the stadium. And even though they have big television contracts as well, derive a lot of their money from gate receipts. And 48% of ticket sales are pooled and shared in Major League Baseball as part of the revenue sharing program. But you've got all those other ancillary uh, items that are, are taken care of. And uh, I mean, it is a big hit for them. It's the it's the Detroit's and the Tampa's yeah. of the world, actually, that because their payrolls are lower, are in far better shape to weather this sort of thing. Yeah, there's listen. There's so many layers to this. Uh, this was a lot of fun, Jeff. Uh, we will. Uh, I know we'll do this again soon. This these sports are going to be arm in arm, uh, along with the NFL and and hockey, uh, arm in arm, and trying to figure out how to play again, how to do it in an environment that's safe. It's, I, I don't know that there's a safe environment. It's going to be as safe as they can get it. Right. With, with as, as much of a handle on the risk as, as you can. And um, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to come. Jeff, always great to have you on, man. Let's bring on an Adam S next time. <laughs> Adam it S. Be silver or Schefter, either one. Okay. I, I'm going to work on it. <laughs> see, see you, Jeff. See you, pal. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, ESPN's MLB insider, Jeff Passan. And remember, you can check out Ariel Hawani's MMA show podcast, where Ariel not only talks the likes of Conor McGregor, but also to people like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Chris Stapps Porzingis, and Shaquille O'Neal. You can find Ariel on an NBA sideline, just as well as you'll find him Cage side and MMA. It's a great listen. And you can hear him several times a week, every week. Ariel Hawani's MMA show. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to also listen to new and archived episodes of The Low Post with Zach Lowe, The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhurst, and of course, The Woach Pod, wherever you get your shows. We'll catch you soon.